Thanks, Eric. Well, this morning, I really want to focus on, on verse 42, the four key elements there that you may have seen of this early church as it's expanding and Christ has risen and is seated at the right hand of God the Father and he gives his people something to do. He empowers them with the Holy Spirit and then they begin these new communities of faith. And what typifies them there in verse 42, four things that they're devoted to. So this is something that they're a, a core commitment, as it were, of the early church. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer. And we'll look at that uh, together in just, just a moment. Now, on, on our website, we say, uh, depth in relationships matters. We grow together, not alone, and are enriched as we apply gospel basics in community and learn from each other. Um, that's our way of trying to unpack just a bit of what it means for us to have community rich as one of our core values. Last week, we looked at being Christ-centered. We said we want to make sure Christ is at the center of everything we do. And when we talk about being community rich, at least part of what we're saying is we want to learn together what it means to be Christ-centered. We want to understand how we orient our lives around Jesus. And we do that in relationship with each other. And we learn those kind of gospel basics as we walk alongside each other as well. And God's given us some images, a model in the very essence of who he is, of what community looks like. It's called the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelling in eternal fellowship and each preferring the other in love. That is a picture of what it looks like to be in community. Deep, intimate, a sense of shared goal and mutual affection. And we naturally long for that kind of community. Uh, if we're in good space, we want somebody to know us and to love us. We want to have a shared and common goal with others too. That's baked into our DNA. But there are a lot of barriers to that. When we think about being community rich, it sounds so nice. A lot of these core values do. It sounds good, but it's hard work. And there are things that get in the way from us really enjoying or experiencing that kind of community. Here are some of the, the barriers that I think of when I think of wanting and, and experiencing this core value of community rich. One is just proximity. You know, we live in the suburbs and you're 20 minutes away without traffic maybe. And if somebody else is 20 minutes away in the other direction and we're coming together on Sunday morning, which I think is why Sunday morning is a, a high value to commit to, to gather together. It may be the only time we're in close proximity with each other. This is one of the reasons I miss our greeting time as well. It's your chance to catch up on the past week or two or three, and we do it quickly. Proximity is a huge barrier to community. Up margin is another one I thought of. Who's got the time? I mean, if depth, depth in relationships matter, then we have to spend time with each other. And our lives are super busy. 
I mean, we all have uh, maybe a job to perform, whether we're getting paid for it or it's right at home and we're not getting paid for it, even with compliments and gratitude. We have something to do. It occupies a lot of our time. We don't have the energy to go out of our way and invest more resources in building relationships. And you can't have real community without time and sacrifice and a shared experience. That just takes some margin. Uh, you already kind of got a glimpse of that, cultural values. Um, what, what I mean by that is uh, I'm from the West. Uh, I'm American. And whether I realize it or not, part of what I value is my autonomy, my independence, my privacy. I have private property. No solicitors. Don't come to my house. Knock on the door, I'll pretend I'm asleep taking a nap on a Saturday morning. I don't want you around here. That's, that's a very American value. And that kind of keeps us from cultivating a sense of community. Some people more than others maybe have an open door policy. There are cultures who are very accustomed to people just dropping in and staying for a very long time. Now, for us, as Americans, if we want to get together with you, we say, okay, let's get our calendars out and find a time two, three weeks down the road, and then something comes up and we keep pushing it down the road. There are cultures where that just doesn't even exist. You drop in, you show up, you have a meal, you linger, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, as an American, I'm wondering, how, how long are we going to be here? I have an appointment to get to. Jesus, of course, comes from one of the cultures that sits around and enjoys a meal for a long time. Uh, some of you are here. I know the Indian culture is like that. I've experienced it. You drop in, you hang out forever. And it's very different, isn't it, in, in America? I don't know what other Asian cultures are like, if it's similar, but that's a, that's a problem for really cultivating community. It, it makes it a little difficult. There's also this, this sense of the individuality versus the corporate. Um, on the other hand, I've observed as well that sometimes a cultural value, and this is very American, typically is to be kind of open. Of course, the South is different than kind of up here, right? When we moved down South, people were very, very nice, but you couldn't really get to know them. Um, in other places in the States, you're kind of an open book. You're more vulnerable. You're more open. That's, that's my own personal tendency. It could be uh, just personality too, but I'm open. I'm honest. I, let me run to repent and tell you how terrible I am in a public forum. But there are a lot of cultures who would never admit that they're wrong because it brings shame on you. And that's counterintuitive to the very notion of Repentance and confessing our sins to each other. And sometimes, sometimes we might not have community because we're unwilling to be honest with each other. So it works both ways. And this is the beauty, I think, of bringing cultures together because typically you can look into somebody else. We tend to baptize our culture and say, we are it. We've arrived and we do everything right. And sometimes it takes somebody from the outside coming in and saying, brother, you've missed something. Or when you go to a different place, you start thinking, hmm, maybe we are a little consumeristic in the United States of America. And we care a lot about stuff more than people. 
You see that more clearly when you're brought out from it. I remember coming back from Eastern Europe and sitting in what was a Biggs just down the road here. I don't know if anybody remembers Biggs. I don't know what it is now. And I was in the cereal aisle, and I thought it was going to implode upon me. I felt like I was in the middle of a vortex being sucked into the center of the earth because there were so many options and choices. And where I'd come from, there was like two cereals and warm milk on a shelf. I couldn't handle it. I felt like I was just being consumed by the consumerism. I'd walked down that aisle plenty of times in other stores like it before I ever went to Eastern Europe where there's very little. And my heart was torn open with my, the grip of materialism on my heart. And you know, when you live in it over time, and this is one of the reasons why I think faith promise is great too. It starts, it kind of addresses our materialism. It's mine. It's my stuff. No, it's not. We're stewarding it, but this is really God's blessing to be stewarded. And part of the way that we train our hearts not to hold on to the things of the world is to be generous with the things of the world. So, you know, maybe there's also some just personal sin involved in a barrier to community as well. You know, I, like pride. If I share something I'm struggling with, what will that person think of me? And I've, I've discovered that's a scary place to be, but when you do that, more often than not, somebody says, you too? Whew. Doesn't dismiss the gravity of it, perhaps, but sometimes we're just not in community because we're not being honest with each other or we're scared of what will happen if we do. I mean, there can be other things, too. You might just be prideful and judgmental. It could be that I say, I'm struggling with this. And you're thinking in your heart, hmm, I knew you were a worse sinner than I was. And I might be struggling with the same thing, but I'm not going to share it because I like my position of strength right now. That's sin. You know another thing keeping us from community? The pandemic. <laughs> I, I mean, I think that has been a pretty big challenge for us as a church that relishes, by definition, gathering together and being in each other's lives. And then we say, oh, you can't do that. You got to be away from each other. You have to put on a mask and eliminate three quarters of your face from seeing what's happening in this circumstance. And I mean, there's an upside to it. Blessings to those joining us virtually who are able to do it and maybe not even in proximity and we can enter a certain level of community but if you're a thousand miles away you can only go so far. Now I hope that on the back end as things begin to open up we cherish community more than ever before and it may be for a little while and then you forget what it was like. Perhaps, I don't know, I hope not. But we have lots of opportunities upcoming. And this is where, when I think of the Redeemer House that God has given us to use as a central point for cherishing gathering together, it could be a little bit more like some of those cultures that say just drop in any time because you don't have to worry about whether or not the bathroom has been cleaned or the toys are picked up from the basement. We can stop in. What a blessing. I wonder when you've experienced the deepest community. I know for me, and could be for some of you, it was during my college years. This is one of the opportunities that the university experience can afford 
you have, it's just different. You're living together with people in some cases. I, I did too. I, I was in the dorm life all four years. And we had at the school where, where I attended, we had our sights on the largest room in, in the entire campus. It was dubbed the palace. And one person, one group of friends, six, got to live in the palace every year. It was typically gifted to, uh, to a senior group of individuals. And we knew this, or my friend group, so we kind of vied and positioned to get the palace, and we, we landed it. Our senior year, one room was just desks where we studied. Not very often were we in there. The other room was a sleep room, and it's just horrifying to think of six 22-year-olds or whatever sleeping uh, in that same thing. It was probably really disgusting. But the big area, the central place, it was like, it was like paradise. It really was the palace. You see, one of my friends was a little bit wealthier, and he brought, bought a deep freezer, and we stocked it with frozen burritos which is, you know, the bedroom thing was an issue. But we, we had all kinds of food that was just stocked up in there. And this is a big deal for college guys. You know, we're always fighting over a slice of pizza. And then we had a hanging uh, punching bag in there, too, and, and windows that looked out at kind of a central piece of the area. And we had, we had the most amazing bonding experience in our lives as we're in and out of relationships and thinking about what are we going to do next and going through the, the, the process of figuring out what do I believe and, um, and helping each other through hard times. I mean, it was an amazing community, and you know what happens. You don't live there forever. You actually have to get a job and leave that community and go and to live into kind of what's normal life. And I, at our previous church, we had quite a few people coming from a college setting and involved in crew, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, which does a great job of discipling. You know, early on, you get somebody discipling you, and then you disciple somebody else, and then they go out into the community. They all struggled with what, what it looked like when they had a job and had to shop and didn't have the margin and the time and their distance. I mean, you're living with each other in college. And that transition was really tough. I remember talking to plenty of them saying, what is life like now? And being attached to a local church helps, but the local church gathering on a Sunday morning is not the same as 24-7 lets at 3 a.m. go and hacky sack on the quad. And there are seasons of life where community comes a little bit more easily. What I love about this text that we haven't even gotten to yet, but believe me, I will, is that they were devoted to each other. There was an intentionality to all these elements that they're doing. We are making this a high priority. We're devote. You know what devotion is. You're, you're committing to something, and it's, you could be a devoted fan of something, and you're going to spend money on it. You're going to buy the, uh, the, 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 the apparel. You're going to read the stats. You're going to look forward to the trades. And here they're devoted to these elements, these four elements. So let's take a look at these elements because as a, if our core value is to be community rich, here's a glimpse of what that might look like and some of the key elements that are involved in at least getting us to a place where we can enjoy something like this, some depth in our relationship and some community. And the first element there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Content, instruction. 
The apostles' teaching, obviously, is the New Testament for sure, but it's more than that. You know, Acts chapter 22, if you were to look at, open it up and look just before, Peter, who authors some of the New Testament, he is quoting five times from the Old Testament. And Paul, as well, spends a lot of time. The book of Hebrews is all about the Old Testament. So when we say the apostles' teaching, it's not just the New Testament. It's God's whole revelation, Old Testament and New Testament together. They gathered to listen to that teaching. And apparently they had something like a hunger for God's word. They were desperate to hear and to learn more. It's that type of hunger that we need for instruction from the word. I mean, Jesus himself said in Matthew 4, 4, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is so essential and so necessary for our survival that Jesus compares it to bread. You don't really just live by consuming bread. You need God's word. And you can sustain, but not in a way that you'll be actually thriving and growing. You're, you're starving yourself if you're not taking in God's word. With God's word, the more we eat it, the more we develop a taste for it. <laughs> because it's dynamic. And I'm not saying it's like Skyline Chili, but I know the first time I ate Skyline Chili, I was like, I don't know about this stuff. And the next time it was like, oh, okay, I, I guess I can kind of see it. And then by time five or something, I'm like, I need to get some. In some ways, God's word can be like that. Is It may seem, seem difficult, but as you pursue it, God, God does something. He illuminates our hearts by virtue of his Holy Spirit. And then we have a hunger and a thirst more for it. And that's no surprise because we're told that the word of God is living and active. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it's not just dry and dusty, it's alive. It's not just something that applied thousands of years ago, it's active now, today. And it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart that goes on to say. I mean, Timothy, who was influenced by Paul, suggests that all scripture is God-breathed. That is, when we open up God's word, the hard work that's been done to say, what is the canon what is the authoritative list of books that God has given for us to learn from? This is it. We're holding it. It's been breathed out by God. Theopneustos. It's useful then for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. You want to know how you're supposed to live, what you're doing wrong? It's in God's word. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to walk in, in the good works God's prepared in advance for you to do? You need to be in his word. We grow in community as we learn together under the tutelage of God's word. Some of you might know David Platt. I think he's written a few books, but Radical is the one that I have. He's a pastor of a rather large church down south. And he uh, was exposed to churches around the world that are very different than the American church, namely churches that are persecuted, where... Uh, you know, in some cases in these churches, people don't have copies of the Bible, maybe only pieces of it that they share. And they're so hungry for God's word because they, they, they're longing for something that is true, that they'll walk all kinds of miles, gather together in dismal circumstances, and just listen and study. 
and his reflection on the American church, and I can be hard on the American church, right? Because I'm American, and I'm a pastor, is that there aren't people, there aren't many people who are really thirst, hungry for God's word, in part because we have, we have so much access to it, but nonetheless, he sees it as a real problem. And so, he starts talking about their church making some changes and wondering if maybe people will still be hungry for God's word truly. So what they do is they begin taking a, a different approach. Here's what he says. Um, God's word is enough for millions of believers who gather in house churches. His word is enough for millions of other believers who huddle in African jungles, South American rainforests, and Middle Eastern cities. But is his word enough for us? This is the question that often haunts me when I stand before a crowd of thousands of people in the church I pastor. What if we take away the cool music and the cushioned chairs? What if the screens are gone and the stage is no longer decorated? What if the air conditioning is off and the comforts are removed? Would his word still be enough for his people to come together? At Brook Hills, we decided to try to answer this question. We actually stripped away the entertainment value and invited people to come together simply to study God's word for hours at a time. And so what they did is they invited people to come and they just are, are sitting and just looking in, into God's word, studying it and then praying, studying and praying. And they had an amazing response. Uh, uh, you know, Ashish and I, Back in the day over at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, one day I was thinking about a Sunday morning having just carpets out and telling everyone to sit down. There's no child care. There's no music. We're just opening God's Word, studying and praying. We, we never did it. But maybe we will some Sunday morning when you come in. He goes on to say, what is it about God's Word that creates a hunger to hear more? And not just to hear the Word, but to long for it, study it, memorize it, and follow it. What causes followers of Christ around the world, literally, to risk their lives in order to know it? These questions cause us to step back and look at the foundations of the gospel. Fundamentally, the gospel is the revelation of who God is, who we are, and how we can be reconciled to him. Yet in the American dream, where self reigns as king or queen, we have a dangerous tendency to misunderstand, minimize, and even manipulate the gospel in order to accommodate our assumptions and our desires. As a result, we desperately need to explore how much of our understanding of the gospel is American and how much is biblical. Now that's a statement you could unpack for a long time. And in the process, we need to examine whether we have misconstrued a proper response to the gospel and maybe even missed the primary reward of the gospel, which is God himself. That's the great, it makes me think of Genesis 15 when uh, God says to Abraham, I am your great reward. This was a guy who had tons of wealth and he, he was willing to leave it all because he realized God is his great reward. That is his great reward. And when you have a lot of stuff, that sounds good in theory, but it's hard to leave it behind sometimes. The person who has the hardest time getting into the kingdom of God is the one who has the most to lose in this world. And these people who have oftentimes nothing are the ones who realize that their only hunger, can, the only way their hunger can be filled is with God's words. Because this world cannot fill it. 
And when you have a lot of stuff, it's easy to think otherwise. You know, T Tim Keller, who I, I quote, uh, I, I look up to him. He's, he's a, a significant author and pastor in Manhattan, and even in our denomination, has been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. 80% of people die within a year or two, year and a half who have been diagnosed with that. And he had just written a book on death um, and, and when all this happened. And you can see some interviews. He wrote an article in The Atlantic just this past week. Um, MSNBC interviewed him. And he's basically saying he's having a hard time following his own advice. He didn't want to read his book <laughs> on, on, on death. But he's come to the point where he's able to listen to some of his own words of comfort to others which now have to land in his heart because it doesn't look like he'll live much longer except for God's grace and intervenes and does something fantastic. And he is trying to put teeth to what he believes and he's finding comfort ultimately in the promises of God. And one of the things that he concludes is that, you know, his wife and he and his wife have a, have a nice life and they're kind of treating earth like heaven sometimes. You know, and it's not designed that way. And when you're faced with death, you realize there is an end time to my time on earth. What's next? Where's the comfort? God's word offers it. And he has to tether himself to it. And so do you and I. There's no guarantees in that respect of what comes next. But God's word endures throughout the ages. We are just a vapor. And God's word also cannot be changed. So we need to anchor ourselves to that. That's element number one. That's teaching. Element number two is fellowship. The apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And some of you know the word koinonia. It can be a popular word in certain circles. And it's a Greek word that simply means sharing or having in common. So when we talk about community, it's not just teaching. There's a lot of people who get great teaching and they don't have much like real fellowship uh, because the, the fellowship is just a bunch of doctrine. They're giant heads walking around. And this is like sharing lives. This is entering into an, uh, an intimate experience, a, a commonality. And, and really, there's two aspects to this. One is cultivating relationships by sharing our, our lives. Teaching's not enough for biblical community. Uh, they were willing to have people enter into their lives, speak into their lives, learn from each other's lives by virtue of constant association. I mean, they're gathering together all the time. That's the very definition of the word. There's kind of a conversion to community, maybe, that some people had to experience. So our lives must intersect. This is where it's challenging again in our context because you have natural community you build at work, you're, you know, when you're reporting someplace, you're in relationship with those people. Whether you like them or not, they become a part of your stories and, and, and they shape you. And then maybe it's school for kids or even the parents or you're part of a traveling soccer team and you're close to everybody on that soccer team. These are the intersection points. So that's why part of what it means to be in community is to make sure we're actually gathering together and spending time in each other's lives. That's a huge challenge in a privatized suburban context. So we need space and time for sharing it. But we also need to make sure that we're using that time well. 
And using it well takes a willingness to enter into each other's lives. It's a two-way street. I mentioned earlier about being somewhat vulnerable as an opportunity to create more community. In The Calvary Road, Roy Hessian writes this, we do not walk on this highway alone. Others walk with us. There is, of course, the Lord Jesus, but there are other wayfarers too. And the rule of the road is that fellowship with them is as important as fellowship with Jesus. Indeed, the two were intimately connected. Our relationship with our fellows and our relationship with God are so linked that we cannot disturb one without disturbing the other. Everything that comes between us and another, such as impatience, resentment, or envy, comes between us and God. These barriers are sometimes no more than veils, veils through which we can still, to some extent, see, but if not removed immediately, they thicken into blankets and then into brick walls, and we are shut off from both God and our fellows shut into ourselves. Pretty strong statements about the necessity of developing fellowship and sharing our lives and I think even confessing our sins and being vulnerable, which exposes us to hurt and to misunderstanding so we can get self-protective. It's a risk to do this, but it's also an opportunity. Roy Hessian goes on to say, no one can have fellowship with an unreal person. It is no use our pretending that we are broken before God if we're not broken in our attitude toward those around us. God nearly always tests us through other people. God's will is made known in his providences, and his providences are so often others with their many demands on us. That's a different way to look at somebody you consider annoying. God's providential gift to you. <laughs> If sharing things in common brings people together, there's one guaranteed thing that we can bank on having in common. Sin. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So if we say, let's do this community thing, get ready to be hurt and misunderstood and confused and frustrated and irritated and annoyed, that's God's wonderful providence to you so that you can become more like Christ. Christ-centered, community-rich. In a biblical community, there are opportunities which exist that are unique, ought to be unique. Confession, reconciliation, humility, repentance, forgiveness, mercy. Those belong to the people of God. They're supposed to be what we're known for in community. Sin exists everywhere. These ought to be unique. We have an opportunity there. So that's one, one aspect, cultivating relationships by sharing our lives. But there's another one here, cultivating generosity by sharing our material goods. And this is what we've seen here already. They're sharing, and we talked about this a while ago, as people have a need, they're bringing their material goods so bonded is this biblical community. If one has a need, others are willing to meet it. And there's no coercion here. And as I said earlier, I think it's an antidote to materialism. If you have something, then look for opportunities to share it. And if you need something, don't rob others of the blessing by refusing to express it. 
I talked about college before. I didn't have a car. My parents lived overseas. I started dating this gal named Jill, and she lived about an hour and a half away, was on the campus, but every now and then wanted to go visit uh, parents, and I, uh, you know, she, she had her own car, but I, I didn't. So there was a, a guy named Pete who was a, a younger guy. I guess I kind of discipled him a bit as well, and he had a nice shiny red truck that he really loved. And he had, he had made some money in high school and had some investments and bought this truck. And I said, I'd really like to go visit Jill this weekend, probably just in conversation. He said, take my truck. I said, really? He said, yeah, it's just my, it's not really my truck. It's God's truck. And I'm stewarding it. I deem you worthy of my stewardship. <laughs> so take it. And I did. I just think about that. He didn't, you know, he could have just possessed it for himself. And he saw as a steward, anything you have, you are stewarding. And when you enter into community, you're saying, we're going to steward as best we can those material goods. Well, let's take a look at these final two elements here. The breaking of the bread is the next one. So, so far we've had teaching, we've had fellowship, and now they say in verse 42 again that, they engage in the breaking of bread. And, and most commentators would suggest that reference in verse 42 is to the Lord's Supper, which appears to be in view. There's reason to share it regularly. We're re we need to be reminded of our continual need for Christ's presence and work in our lives. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. There's an ongoing once-for-all sacrifice for sins, but also we are one loaf baked together. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're signifying that we are one in Christ. We're a community, and we are identifying as one body. We share together in the body of Christ as the body of Christ. And there's so much imagery, too, otherwise, about us being a, a body and connected with each other and different members that are coming together, that's all signified in the Lord's Supper. And that's one of the ways that we can combat the isolation, isolationism rampant in our context is gathering together for the Lord's Supper for sure. But it's more than just that because down in verse 46, it says they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So a part of it is the Lord's Supper, that corporate gathering, but there's more going on. They got together as often as they possibly could to share meals with each other. And really, that reflects Jesus' own practice. There's an interesting statement in Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. I'll bet you wouldn't have filled it. If I'd left a blank, the Son of Man came fill in the blank. He came eating and drinking. I mean, G Jesus, when he came, he was fully man. He liked a good meal. He liked a good beverage. And he knew that sharing in that, why were people upset that he was leaving for Zacchaeus' house? He's gone the, to be the guest of a sinner? Because that's fellowship. You're honoring somebody. You're dignifying that relationship by breaking bread with them. You know, Luke wrote Acts also. So when Luke talks about the early church, and he's also looking back on Luke 7, 34, saying the Son of Man came eating and drinking. In fact, New Testament scholar Robert Karras notes, in Luke's gospel, 
Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. I mean, that's what he says. If you read through the gospel, that's what he's doing. I'm going back and forth, Jared, and I think it's me, not you. I'm getting happy about that. Yeah, so that's, I mean, you read the gospel, that's what's happening. He came eating and drinking. We share meals together. You know, it's interesting. Paul confronts Peter um, in, in ministry later on. You know, Peter had a hard time including Gentiles. Is, seeing, is God including Gentiles completely? Yeah, go ahead. Eat some bacon, Peter. Whoa! No, no. That's Acts chapter 8. But if you remember later on, Paul comes and he sees that Peter separated himself. He's not eating with the Gentiles. And Paul confronts him. He says, that's wrong. Because eating is, is, is so intimate. And it's a signal that we're, we're together in fellowship. We all eat. So include others when you can. Again, pandemic, a little more difficult. It's not only a matter of gathering believers together. It's actually a wonderful opportunity to engage those who are not yet Christ followers. It could be the single easiest access point for what we call evangelism in our context, having people into your home over a meal. Francis Schaeffer, who is a very well-known apologist, talks about how our lives can make an impact on our neighbors in our city. And here's what he says. He's like, you want to make a real impact on your community? You want to be a church of influence? This is what he says. He says this. Don't start with a big program. Start personally and start in your home. I dare you. I dare you in the name of Jesus Christ. You don't have to convince your elders, right, that we're just awesomely, you know, they're the elders and installed. All you have to do is open your home and begin. And there is no place in God's world where there are no people who will come and share a home as long as it is a real home. Tim Chester argues Jesus' mission strategy was a long meal stretching into the evening. He did evangelism and discipleship around the table with some grilled fish, a loaf of bread, and a pitcher of wine. Theologian and chef Simon Carey Holt says this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. We exercise there. The, where am I? It's not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous, yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. At base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcome and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness is its real worth. And some of us may have the gift of hospitality. Use it. I think, again, this is an opportunity for the Redeemer House in the future. It's a place where we gather in fellowship and enjoy. How's the church at doing this in general? At opening up homes. And looking who's in your neighborhood and, and, and inviting them into your space. Or when you have opportunity going into theirs. 
Maybe some are better than others. Hospitality is an opportunity not only to engage those in the church, but those outside the church as well. Some of you know Rosaria Butterfield, actually Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. And she was a very prominent figure in the lesbian community, a professor, uh, and, and then had an encounter with Christ and entered into Christian fellowship, and she's written some books and, and articles as well. And she actually talks about it, a lot about hospitality. And when she came out of the one community and entered into the other, she discovered kind of a void when it comes to Christian fellowship of this sort. Um, she offered a, a couple of reflections on this, just a, a two and a half minute video clip. The LGBT community is a real community and and sometimes, and it's very hard to hear this, but sometimes when, when parents will come and talk to me and they'll say, you know, my daughter is lost to the lesbian community and, and I can't seem to get her back. And, and the reality is, is it's hard. It's hard to leave that community because it is a well, it's a well, um, tooled community. It, it, it works very well. It's a community truly given to hospitality and mercy work. Um, I was in the LGBT community during the heyday of AIDS, and um, I never saw a church step forward to help. I, I just never did. But I saw so much of what I now know as God's common grace poured out and through my friends in the LGBT community that it was, it, was, um, it was a profound experience for me, so profound that I really do tell people that the hospitality gifts that I use today as a pastor's wife, I honed in my LGBT community. One of the hallmarks of the LGBT community is that someone's home is open every night for hospitality, for a meal, for fellowship. And it's a come as you are. And, and it's really, it, it's done just to stand there between you and suicide or you and alcohol or you and something else. And when you contrast that to what, what is common in the Christian community, you can understand why at least I and I think probably others who came out of an LGBT community feel that the Christian community it is living on a starvation diet, and, and, and it's frustrating to me because, I, you know, starving people can't eat a meal even if they try to. For, for Christians who really want to help and really want to interface with people, really want to meet people where they're at, we have to have a theology of community that is, that, that, that is open and loving and accessible. And having one fellowship meal the third Lord's Day of the month is not it. People need to be in real time with one another. People need to have access to you, your home, your life, your family, and not just by appointment only. And that, that fluidity and that rhythm of life community is something that the LGBT community is known for, something that the Christian community could benefit from understanding better. So he talks about, she talks about a theology of community, and that's, that's what we're trying to build here. And uh, to me, profound insights about sort of a lack of what she experienced leaving one community, going to another, and just not finding a replacement. But we're supposed to specialize in that. <laughs> That's our thing, right? 
Koinonia, fellowship, come as you are. You can belong before you believe. So let's do it. And here's the good news. I can't open my home up to everybody. I, I, we we, we want to have as open as home as possible. We know that things come and go and stages of life. May, but, but you all have homes too, of one sort or another. So let's be hospitable. Let's aim toward that as we think about community. And then the fourth element, and this is just the one I'll cover most briefly this morning, uh, simply because a lot has been said in the past about it for sure. Sorry about that. Now I'm taking over again and I'm messing things up. Is prayer. You know, the final thing they uh, did was pray. Uh, I know for me when I'm engaged in prayer is when I experience the most intimacy with Christ and frankly with others too. Um, Lots happens when we pray together. We shape, our souls are shaped. Our sense of dependence is shaped. It postures us to see God's work together in answered prayer. Again, faith promise. We say, wow, the number is $15,000 of pledges. Let's pray together to see how God provides. And let's invite each other to even share about how God's providing. That, that's, and we pray <coughs> in that way and see God's hand at work. It develops community. They devoted these things to them. That's part of why we said first things first this year. Let's start with the day by committing it to God. Of course, it's hard to see answers to prayers you haven't prayed. (laughs) It's a core aspect of their community experience. And and what I put up here was just some starting points, right? The first is individually. If you don't know how to pray, this is a, a, a prayer that's been cultivated by churches mostly in the east of the Orthodox variety, but it's a compilation of several places in the scriptures where people say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me. That's an individual prayer. It doesn't seem like it's a community-oriented one, I know. But it it sets your heart in a place. I pray this prayer off and on, and sometimes a lot, when I need God's mercy, just to even calm me down. And when I don't, obviously, sometimes it it doesn't go well. Even, Even just to take a deep breath, pray that God's mercy is with me. And then, you know, corporately, too, one of the benefits of what God has given us is models of prayer, things that we can pray and lift up. And the, the Lord's Prayer is a great example of that that reminds us of who God is. It's, it's a great prayer because it says, Our Father. We're in relationship. It's a community relationship, but it's a relationship to God as Father, and we are sons and daughters together. And, and it's, it's a prayer that makes us It's very, very practical, right? Give us the daily things that we need. You're the one who's going to sustain us. You're the true bread of life who gives any bread that we have. We we recognize that we have to to tread cautiously through the day because our hearts are prone to wander. You know, forgive us from sins and lead us not into a way that is going to harm others. Deliver us from evil, from the very wicked one that's here too. And, and we want our, your kingdom to come, not ours. We want your will to be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. And it writes us to remember that the day is about God's glory and not our own. So those are four elements. And I don't know how you would stack us up as a church necessarily, but we want 
to be as a core, remind ourselves as a core value. This is part of what we mean when we say community rich. These are at least four elements we want to strive toward. And some of those are outside of my control. I hope you see a lot of it is in your hands. The church is living stones being built together, and you are a stone. You're a house of God, and it is a house that's to be open to others as well. Well, I'm going to invite us actually to, to close this message um, by praying together uh, the, the, Lord's, the Lord's Prayer. And then after that, we will uh, finish up as we typically do by singing the doxology, and I'll offer a benediction. So with all this in mind, I invite you to pray the words that uh, Jesus' disciples prayed when he taught them how to pray. He said, Lord Jesus, how do we pray? And he prayed, and he gave them the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.